0: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as your Son revealed who he is in this gospel lesson today, that we would know you through him and give you glory in all our lives. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be o acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Yesterday, Julie and I had the privilege of going to some dear friend's baptism for their, their newest daughter, and it was at another church that I have some, some good relationships with, but because I've, I've been trying more to be conscious of also representing the church, when I go into public, I wore my clerical, so people recognized me, and afterwards, people were coming up to me and talking to me, who I, who I vaguely recognized, and I was like, I think I know that person. And fortunately, almost all of these people were like, hi, I'm so-and-so, we met some time ago, which I very much appreciated because I am never really good with names. I, it it kind of goes in one ear and out the other, as probably all of you know, and it takes me a few weeks to remember, oh, your name is so-and-so. And then there's always that fear of like, especially I was thinking about that and, and this example as, as everybody was coming in. Like, all right, get their name right, get their name right. And I always have this like, underlying fear that I'm going to be like, hi, Bob. And... But anyway, it was really helpful because then I was like, oh, yes, I know who you are. And that's ultimately the question that's at play this morning in this gospel lesson that we read just a few minutes ago. The question of who Jesus is. And believe it or not, John wastes absolutely no time in starting to present us with a full picture of who the person of Jesus is. Our lesson this morning starts with, after after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, perhaps you know this, or perhaps this is new information for you. But there were three feasts that the Jewish men were required to go to each year. And I don't want to belabor this, but, but it was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And so they were required to stop what they were doing, make a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, and, and do a sacrifice, celebrate, and then go home and resume their lives. And each of these feasts had a purpose to act to remind Israel of God's covenantal faithfulness. Now, now, as we think about these feasts and as we go through this lesson, there alone, think about the sacrifice that it would take for a man to stop what he's doing, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, do do the feast thing, and then make a pilgrimage home. That that would have consumed a tremendous amount of time. And yet, this tells us something about Jesus first and foremost. And John makes, makes it really intentionally clear that he does this in and out throughout the years. And this feast is actually just vague. It's a feast that he's required to go to. And it tells us that Jesus is faithful to the law, which if you, if you paid attention to this lesson, you notice that that's one of the things that, that the authorities are about to say, no, no, you're not faithful to the law, but we'll get there in a moment. And so it's no accident that, that Jesus is there. He's, he's showing us that the person of Jesus is obedient to the will of God as is found in Holy Scripture. And so as we read on, he comes to this pool, which name is besets the, which is most likely, and there's some debate on this, but it's most likely the House of Mercy. And the reason I think this is because many of the sick people would gather there and they seem to be looking for some moment, some act of mercy and healing For what they're facing. And the fact that Jesus shows or that John shows us Jesus coming there tells us another thing about who Jesus is. That Jesus' mercy takes place in the hardest and some of the hopeless places in the world. This place of sickness, this is the place where John decides to show Jesus' third act of healing. During COVID, the, the midst of the, the worst of it, I, I had to go into one of those COVID wings in a nursing home, which was perhaps the most grim place that I've ever had to go. And I won't go into a lot of details, but it was dark and silent, and I had to put on all kinds of garb to just go in there. And I felt just like a darkness in that place. But even in the darkness and hopelessness of that place, Jesus works there. And we're reminded of this in this gospel lesson today as we see Jesus go into these sick people and pick one to heal. And he's very intentional about who he picks to heal. Now, he, uh, now, before we press on throughout this and before we press into this idea of hopelessness and hopefulness that Jesus brings, I want to point out something. I think all of us are familiar with this text. We've read it before And if you're an astute listener, a better listener than I am, perhaps you've got through it and you're like, isn't there something about angels in this text? Where are the angels? And what happens here is something that's called a variant. And I don't often talk about this in the text because more often than not, it's not helpful to talk about this. But this is such a big one that I want to point it out, that Throughout the text, you'll notice time and again, there'll be little footnotes if you're reading at home in your Bible, like, here, this might have said this, actually. And the reason I want to point this out is sometimes when people hit these points called variants, they just have anxiety, and they're like, well, can we trust Scripture? And I want to show you why you can. But secular magazines and people that argue against the authority of Scripture use points like these to say, no, you can't. And they'll say something like, well, there's millions of variants. Or they'll say something like, well, that's just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. But we don't need to be threatened by any of these arguments, because they don't really end up holding a whole lot of water. First and foremost, many, many, many of those millions of variants that they bring up really don't even need to be mentioned or thought about, their word order issues or spelling issues or things along that line. But then also think about, they are copies of copies of copies, but we also see an incredible amount of consistency within those copies. The example I kind of thought of is I I write a note and I hand it to Ben and Holly and tell Ben and Holly to copy it, and they both make a copy and pass it on. And By the time it gets back to George in the very back, and he collects all the copies, if he looks at all the copies, probably they're going to be mostly the same. Maybe somebody misspelled a word or forgot a word as they were copying But George can read it and know what I was writing to Ben and Holly in the front row. In other words, these copies are are so consistent that that's the more amazing thing than the fact that, yeah, as they made copies, there were some minor issues within them. The third thing to bear in mind is that these variants are actually available for somebody like myself or or another pastor who has a semi-decent understanding of Greek to stop and slow down and look at and, and really understand What's going on? So the only reason that I bring up this specific variant is because one of my professors came up with what he calls the grandma test. And the question he would ask himself is, well, if my, ran a- if my grandmother ran across this variant, would she care? And in this case, yes. I think if my grandma ran across this variant, she'd be very confused and want to know, well, why is there this whole big chunk in the bottom of my Bible that says, some, some manuscripts say blah, blah, blah. and so i want to point this out because at the end of the day variants don't need to threaten our reading of scripture variants don't need to like frighten us they're there and when somebody comes up to you and is like well why do you trust the bible they they have all these errors in them you can point out well yeah but what's more amazing is how many copies are consistent and the reality there's another deeper thing here whether or not an angel was stirring up this water The point of this passage isn't anything to do with an angel. The point of this passage is that John is revealing the glory of God in Christ. The angel doesn't change that. It's a small detail. And just so you know, the number of variants that possibly just change the reading of a passage are so few. I think it's maybe a dozen or so, or even fewer than that. And none of those variants change the meta-narrative, that's the overarching narrative of scripture, nor do they challenge orthodox theology. So if somebody brings that up to you, just it's not something that we need to lose sleep over. The witness of scripture is profoundly consistent, even when one pops up and, and fails the grandma test, and we need to pause and say, well, why is this here? So let's now return to this idea of hope. We talked about this hopelessness, this feeling of sinking hopelessness, and I think we've all been there where we just feel heavy and hopeless. I moved to California some, some time ago, it's rapidly approaching a decade ago, to ask the Lord one question. I, I left the safeness and comfort of my home in Maine and moved to California, and I wanted to know, am I called the full-time ministry? I was offered a really good secular job there, and I, I took it. And eventually I found that the answer was yes. But the process to get there was incredibly painful. It meant having people say horrible things about me, having a bishop spread lies about me, and finally the willingness to step out from that situation and actually take a job that didn't pay anything at all so that eventually I would end up here. But passing through that, there were some moments of deep, deep hopelessness where I just thought, what have I done and why am I here? And I had to call friends and be like, I don't understand why I'm here or what I've done. And to be encouraged through that. Hope in these situations, if we lose hopelessness, it can be, or if we lose hope in these situations, it can be painful and dark and dreadful. And I think we've all been there. And so we meet this man this morning and we learn two things about him. First, He's been sick for 38 years. So Julie and I are 38. So that means he'd been sick the same amount of time that we've been alive. Almost all of you have experienced more than 38 years of your life. You can pause and just think about what happened 38 years ago, if you can, if you can remember what happened 38 years ago. That's a long period of time. Imagine being sick for 38 years and how, how hard that would be. Who could blame him for being hopeless? And then on top of that, we find out that he somehow find it, found his way to this pool, which there was like a glimmer of hope there, right? It seems like something happened, whether it was an angel or something else, and the water would trickle, and people could climb in the water, and they'd get better from whatever was bothering him. But he couldn't move. And no one was there to help him to move. So he was alone. He'd been sick for 38 years and he could see hope, but he couldn't get there. That is bleak, guys. (laughs) That is really sad. And Jesus approaches him already knowing this. Jesus is intending to show that he knows. He knows this man. He knows what he needs. And so <clears throat> and so this is really the fascinating thing that happens in this miracle. This is the first miracle in the gospel according to St. John where Jesus initiates. Every other one so far we've looked at, somebody comes up to him and says, could you do this thing? And he, he seems reticent, but he walks up to this man to show who he is. And he says to him, get up, take your mat and walk. It's that simple. Nothing more than that. Nothing less. Nothing less. And it's kind of like my, the acolytes who serve at the, at the table week in and week out know me well enough. So if I look over at them in the middle of service and I say, go do this, they just do it. Because they know I'm not mad at them or anything like that. They just know that I need it done in order for the service to continue without going into something chaotic or, or something along that line. So I say, go do this. And they just go and do it. It's not out of anger or anything like that. And that's what Jesus does here for that man. He says, Go. Take your mat, walk. That's amazing. So think about this man now again. Remember, he's been sick for 38 years. I think I can safely say that almost all of us have had like the flu for half a week or a week, and we laid on the couch, and it was really unpleasant. And if we're graced graced enough to have a spouse, they were really sweet to us, and all of those things. But you, you get better, and you get up, and you try and walk through the neighborhood, and you get like four houses down, and you're just exhausted, right? You know that feeling. You've gone just a little ways, and and in just that little bit amount of time, your strength has sunk away a little bit. Now think about a man who has been sick for 38 years. Much of this, it seems that he's been laying on this mat, unable to move. But what does he do when Jesus says, get up, take your mat, and walk? He gets up, he takes his mat, and he walks. We see here something amazing about Jesus. Not only does he have the authority to cast out whatever sickness or illness or ailment was bothering this man and had him bedridden, he had authority over the body of this person. And he had authority over the time that this person would need, right? If, if it was us and we went and had surgery or, or were sick for a month, chances are you would then go into physical therapy for another month so that you could walk and not just fall down your stairs or something awful like that at home. But he says, no, and and the man does it. He gets up and he walks. Now, if the gospel according to St. John was a movie, here we'd have some forbidding music, right? Like, bum, bum, bum. (laughs) And, And John fills this in with the phrase, but it was the Sabbath. But it was the Sabbath. And it's important to understand the context of what's about to happen. In Jeremiah 17, the Lord forbids carrying loads. That's where this, this, the, the trouble comes in here. But in order to really understand what is going on and why the Lord forbids loads, we need to understand the book of Jeremiah. And I won't spend too much time doing that, don't worry. Um, <clears throat> but the big problem that happens in Jeremiah is the people have gotten greedy and sinful And they no longer are focusing on serving the Lord. Instead, they lust after money and just do whatever they can to get and get and get and get. And so even on the Sabbath day, that was their one and only goal. It wasn't to pause and pray. It wasn't to stop and, and look into their hearts like we try to do week in and week out. Say, where do I need to repent? Where have I not focused on the Lord? All they thought about was, how do I get ahead? And so this prohibi- prohibition on carrying directly looks towards this attitude of selfishness. It says, no, stop everything because your focus is so wrong. And now this prohibition, like all things in life, led to lots of thoughts. And at least one of the commentaries from, from the ancient rabbis that I found was a paragraph about that long of Jewish legalese of this is what you can and can't do as far as carrying goes. And mostly it's just don't carry things. But like, like we like to do, we, we, we hear don't do this. And it's like, well, if we're not supposed to do this, we should probably not do this. And eventually it becomes this and this and this and this. And this is why the man gets into trouble. Because these, they've put these barriers around any sort of carrying. And so they see what he's doing and they go, oh no, you're carrying something on the Sabbath. And technically speaking, if you look at, at the, what they wrote out, he was breaking what they had written out. But it missed the point of the commandment that the Lord gave in Jeremiah. It had nothing to do with acts of mercy. and so they they find this man and they say well why are you carrying this and and this whole give and take and he kind of does what adam and eve does and what we tend to do when we're confronted with a problem right it's like well somebody else told me to do it right instead of and 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 his excuse is legitimate because jesus just sort of slips away and it's sort of this one of those funny images that john is full of where jesus kind of goes poof and we're like that's weird that jesus was able to do that but okay or it's just that it was really crowded and he just walked off and so he doesn't know who actually did it all he knows is this man walks up to him and says get up take your mat and go and so he he did it but then jesus goes and finds this man so imagine downtown during one of the festivals that we have right like like the lighting of the christmas lights or the christmas parades that's what jerusalem would get like it'd just be busy lots of people milling around and Jesus goes out of his way to find this man. He could have just walked off and no trouble would have happened other than for this man himself. And Jesus does something here. Instead of being like, well, don't tell them, don't, don't do this or that, he addresses the spiritual illness of this man there's something deeper going on than just the outward illness that we've seen. There's some inward unrepentant sin that this man has held onto and refuses to let go. It doesn't really make clear what this, this is, except that we see already, well, this man doesn't have a whole lot of courage, right? He's confronted instead of saying, well, I'm not going to tell you or something along that lines. He's like, well, somebody else told me. And we'll see in just a second. He then runs off and tells the, tells the authorities who in fact told him. And so Jesus has this authority to look within us and confront us in our sins. We saw in the first part of this sermon that there's a deep comfort that Jesus knows us, understands us, and sympathizes with us. But he also can look within us and through the power of the Holy Spirit, convict us of sin and drive us to repentance. And so especially as we head into Lent, if you have that sense of, oh, I need to repent of, so on and so forth, whatever it is, don't ignore it, but throw it at the feet of Jesus. Turn and flee to him. <clears throat> and so then he's, he's, the man now knows, oh, this was Jesus, so he runs back to the Pharisees and tells him who healed him. And because of that, we learn that he sought, they sought him. Not for anything good, but eventually we learn they sought him to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath, which there's a certain amount of irony there that pops up whenever these healings on the Sabbath occur, right? Where they seek to kill him because he gave life on a day that's life-giving. Just want to point out that irony there. <clears throat> but the, the problem with what he did was even greater. He called... God, his Father. This miracle ultimately reveals that it is not presumptuous on Jesus' part to do that, but that he and his Father are of the same mind and the same authority, and that in him working on the Sabbath is the same as his Father working on the Sabbath. When God works on the Sabbath, it's not for the sinful gain that he preaches against in Jeremiah, it's for the edification of humanity. It's to bring life, to bring life even where there's no hope. God works on the Sabbath because he brings life to you and I. So as we wrap up, let us think about this miracle just a little more. The miracle reveals who Jesus is. Jesus is faithful to the law and he understands the law better than you and I ever will. Jesus shows mercy even in the hardest and darkest of places. Jesus already knows your struggles. Jesus has authority over sickness, over the body, and most importantly, over the soul. And Jesus is equal with the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity who shares in the glory of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and that he therefore is worthy of our prayers praise and worship my friends especially if you are new to the faith or walking or not walking yet with Christ i want to invite you to think about this miracle today jesus is an incredibly comforting person he knows your heart and mind and soul and he's experienced pain like you've experienced Today, he gives hope to this man who must have been in the pits of hopelessness to reveal who he is. However, as you saw today, we are called to search the depths of Scripture to genuinely know God through him. Is your notion of who God is based on Scripture or something else? Today, St. John invites you to know God through Christ. And I pray that you would know him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.